Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome to what I believe is episode 147 of the Fitness Devil podcast. We don't always know the episodes off the top of our heads. And this one is special. Uh, I've said this a few times, something similar that we've had people that I've long admired, respected, that I consider to be an aspirational guest. Uh, Martin Rooney, we had on recently, sort of fits that bill. But today we have the person I think is probably the most influential person in our industry that we've yet had today on our podcast, and that's Dr. John Berardi. He's the founder of Precision Nutrition, and I'm really hopeful that you guys have all heard of him. So uh, it's a real treasure to have you on here, John. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the kind words. Thanks for everyone tuning in. If you haven't heard of me, you have now. So it's great. It's been remedied. Uh, and yeah, I've been looking forward to our conversation and sharing some nuggets and having a, just a good chat about all things industry and you know what we're achieving and what we hope to achieve. Well, and it was, it was really hard to get you. We had to like, basically there was like this whole like filter system. We had to like work our way through like PM people and then they'd be like, Hey, these guys are all right. And like, there was just, it was, it felt like a test. You know what I mean? And, you know, I was the final boss. John is <laughs> yes. the final boss. Right? We <laughs> well, got through funny. Craig Weller. We got and, through Adam Fight. We got through Brian St. Pierre. We got through Krista Dix, uh, Scott Dixon, who is wonderful. They're all wonderful people. So Yes. And, you know, for those listening, and that's not because I think I'm so special or whatever, but it's because I'm kind of retired now. And so uh, the amount of minutes I spent in work uh, per week are, are, are very low. So it's just, hey, if I'm going to do uh, one podcast a week, for example, you know, they have to be ones that the hosts are great and we share similar philosophies and it's going to be a good conversation. And they've treated uh, other members of the team really well. So you guys cleared all those bars and so here we are today having a great conversation. Well, this all started because you mentioned Jason Crow, who deserves a real shout out because he's, you know, a major part of your guys' organization. And he, I, I've told this story on air before, he reached out to me, you know, uh, going, hey, I'm Jason from PN, you know, we're the biggest, you know, nutrition coaching company in the world and we're the biggest certification uh, coaching company in the world and you know maybe you've heard of us and I'm like yeah dude like I respond to him uh, I have PN I love your guys work and so he wanted us to to feature you know the affirmation guests who all turned out to be super and and I had a few you know very specific stories of things that I liked that uh, I followed from you and that turned into well where we are right now so yeah Good lesson in that, by the way, too. Jason's approach there, really, rather than kicking down the door and being like, don't you know who I am? Uh, it was a, a lead with humility, which I think is a good principle that sort of weaves through all the things we've done at Precision Nutrition and for coaches and, you know, anyone who works in the industry is really is a great lesson and maybe how to lead uh, and, and foster new relationships. Well, that's a good point. I was going to say it could go the other way. And like, not that we were expecting it to be any any worse, but like you said, we had previous people on for PN and they just blew us away. And like, um, was it Adam Fiat? So we had him on. And then like, I had a bunch of people messaging me like, how did you not know who that is? Like I Mm -hmm. had like um, coach Cap and these guys are the smartest people ever. And it was just kind of a testament to not that you don't know that when you look at PN, you go on the site, you look at the blogs, but it really didn't click until we started talking to everyone. I was like, okay, this is why they're successful. You know what I mean? Like you don't know that all the time unless you talk to the individuals because it doesn't really totally. show through. 
And, you know, like, let's, let's face it, you know, you guys have your own lives and your own businesses to run and all this stuff. So you're not thinking about PN every minute of every day. Right. And in the, in situations like that, it's easy to oversimplify. I catch myself doing it all the time. Right. So in this case, it would be like, Oh, John Berardi's the uh, figurehead or, or whatever the front person or spokesperson for PN. So he's the one you want to talk to. And people oversimplify that all the time. I'm like, no, no, listen, You've got to have Brian for this piece of work or Adam for this piece of work or Krista for this piece of work because they're better than me. And I'm not just saying that because I'd rather be playing with my kids because they're doing that work every single day. It's just they're not in front of the camera all the time or the microphone. And again, another really important lesson, you know, when uh, we as, let's say, members of the health and fitness community look for advice, sometimes we look for the most um, publicized people. And there's often this army of better trained, more capable people that we just simply never heard of through just whatever trickle down media attention. And so, you know, I, I was asked recently, you know, who are my mentors or people I look to for advice and stuff like that? And the answer was, you're going to be super disappointed. You've never heard of any of them because I specifically seek out non-famous people to learn from. You know, if I wanted to learn how to be famous and notable and get lots of attention and publicity, then those are the folks I would go to. But sometimes I'm looking for like, you know, someone to help me with specific aspects of my life. And those are the people working away in the trenches I look for, you know, not people who are notable or who, you know, get on TV lots or whatever. And we've had the same, yeah, you let me do this one first. We've had that same conversation with Pete Dupuis where Pete's talked about how people come in and these parents say, oh, I, I want my you know, 12 year old to work with Eric Cressy. And Pete's gotta yeah. have that constant conversation. Well, actually, and the, Pete will be the first one to say, along with Eric, that as reputable and as brilliant as Eric is, Eric will himself say that there are coaches, uh, forgive me, there are, uh, there's noises in the background. Baby pterodactyls? Yeah, <laughs> baby pterodactyls. Sounds like baby pterodactyls. Yeah, and, and Eric will say that some of the coaches at CSP are even better than Eric is. It's just that Eric's name is on the business. Pete laments that fact every day, I think. <laughs> he often talks about it. But uh, you can develop some really big stars. It'd be like Mark Fisher Fitness and someone going in and going, well, I want to work yeah. with Mark. Yet he has Harold Gibbons there and he has Raj Lawson there and he has uh, uh, Brian Patrick Murphy, right? He has tons yeah. of really incredible people. And so, yeah. And it's, and again, for you know, entrepreneurs and aspiring business owners, you know, there's lessons in here, really crucial lessons, right? Like um, having a person that people can hang the you know, business mantle on or the fame mantle on or whatever can be really beneficial if you use it for what it's good for and then you build up a thing around them. I mean, PN has 150 team members now, right? So uh, for anyone who thinks, oh, Precision Nutrition's John Berardi, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I no longer even am involved operationally with the business, but even when I was like, I, I did a couple of roles in a very complex organization with hundreds, if not thousands of roles to be done, you know? So it's just really important, you know, that uh, if we are going to be aspirational in the entrepreneurship space or in the health and fitness space, we have to not just see the the vantage that we have, but we have to like, so can, can I peek under the hood? Can I really take a look at what's happening in the, in these businesses so you can understand how to model it or replicate it in some way, because copying only what you see on the outside is always going to be a very, very poor um, indicator of what's really happening on the inside.
you know. At what, at what point did that vantage point change? Because like I just like at this point, like fitness companies seem to be exploding, and and they get to this level where, where like you said, they have this figurehead, and they have like they start to build some employees. But at what point did you realize like? I'm not the dude anymore. And like, I need like kind of build these people around me because that's a really hard thing to do, especially yeah. maybe for, for a lot of people. Like that's one of the biggest things I think in business that is the roadblock well, is the owner. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the first PN was essentially started with that in mind from the beginning. Um, you know, my, my career essentially when I first started out, you know, the people who were just ahead of me, who I kind of looked up to who were having an impact in terms of like, educating the health and fitness industry and, you know, uh, releasing great information products and, you know, uh, just sort of being, I don't know, whatever you hate this word nowadays, but the prior to Facebook, prior to Instagram influencers, right? They were the people who influenced the up and coming waves of new professionals. And they were guys like Charles Poliquin and Paul check and individuals like that. And early in my career, I was fortunate enough to meet them, get to know them and uh, both polarizing figures. Uh, but, both exceptionally awesome to me when I was young coming up, both kind, big brotherly, like, to, you know, just open to sharing. And I, I know not everyone has had the same experience with these individuals, but for me, it was beautiful experiences with them. And, um, but the one thing that I, I watched was the amount of travel that they did. You know, they're on the road, like 50 out of 52 weeks a year. And I'm realizing I, I can't do that. Right. And then also noticing, and you guys maybe have had this experience with them, and even some of the new wave of leaders, is that if the individual becomes the brand, then that brand or individual has to be reinvented every few years. Because yeah. the same thing I talked about, it's really easy to oversimplify things we're not thinking about every single day. So if Charles Poliquin is the strength guy, a couple of years later, he then has to come out as the hypertrophy guy. And then a couple of years later, he disappears for a while. Then he has to come out as the functional medicine guy. Then he disappears for a while. And then he, you know what I mean? And this, this is a natural consequence of the audience being like, well, I've learned everything there is to learn from the Charles Poliquin that I know. Right. So he has to be reinvented and it's really difficult to reinvent yourself as a brand. So for me, super early on, I was like, Hey, I'll go out and do the education. But the long game here is a brand, not me. You know what I mean? I don't want to be fused, you know, where my role and my soul and the company are all just this big tangled ball. Right. And um, so super early on, that was the intention. Um, it, it's I think why PN had such success, because, you know, I'm like, I don't want to be fused with the brand, number one. And number two, I can't travel like that. I, I'm way too introverted. Um, you know, end game was to have a family. And I'm like, I, I'll be away from them all the time. That doesn't make any sense to, to start a family and be gone 50 out of 52 weeks. So, you know, the co-founder of PN and I, Phil Caravaggio, sat down and said, okay, what if my rules aren't a limitation? Like, how can I succeed in spite of the fact that I won't travel, you know, like that, that, that I'm introverted? Is there a way to succeed even bigger because of it, Right. So this is right when people are starting to get internet because you have to remember, like we started this business before there was high speed internet, like folks were still on dial up. Right. And that's why I was skeptical in the beginning. Phil's like, we're going to build this stuff and it's going to be online. And I'm like, dude, when I want to, you know, we mentioned, we talked about T-Nation earlier, you know, that was the first big site I started writing for and loading a simple HTML article with no pictures 
would take like 15 minutes back then. You would have to like call up the URL, you see the title of the article, you're not sure that maybe you wanna read, like you don't know because you haven't seen it yet. You click it, you have to wait 15 minutes for it to load and you're praying that it's worth it because <laughs> you don't know, right? So this is the, the environment we started in. But then high speed comes all of a sudden and now you can do education where instead of flying to Stockholm or you know somewhere in Europe uh, to teach 100 students, I can make a video and I could teach unlimited students, you know? And that was really sort of, you know, my own kryptonite became my superpower, right? And that sort of then translated into what PN was, which really was the first online coaching company where we, you know, coach people through body and health transformations in mass online, you know, to date PN's coached over 200,000 people. Um, and then, you know, then turn that into education. Because when we started, people were like, oh, yeah, you need to do in person, right? Weekend seminars. That's what you do. And we're like, yeah, but I can only talk to 50 or 100 or how many people show up through, through the web. We can do this way bigger. And so that's, that's sort of how, how it came to be. And again, it's sort of how, you know, early realization that I don't want to can't be the brand um, and I can't teach and be out front like these guys are that I'm watching. Um, so we need to create something different if we want to have success on our own terms. And events are hard. <laughs> like, yeah, I agree. I, agree I, can't, totally. I can't imagine it was easier back then before, you know what I mean? Like events are hard now with all the um, ease of access of contacts and Facebook and whatever. Like back then, that would have been a nightmare. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a woman on our team, uh, Kate Solovieva, who's... Uh, you know, one of our head coaches at PN and um, was an adventure racer and uh, she's a new mom now. She may be back to adventure racing soon after, maybe with a baby on her back. But um, anyway, she is an extrovert who loves events. And so for years, she'd be hammering me to do these meetups and events. And finally, I was like, Kate, what, you have to understand something. <laughs> like, uh, ask an introvert to plan an event and there will never be said event. It's just an <laughs> impossibility, right? So if you want an event, you have to plan it, right? So anyway, yes, events are hard. Events are particularly hard for me because I have negative desire to be involved with anything surrounding them. Even events that PN has planned over the years, again, it's always kind of magical to show up and people be there and, and want to talk with you and you can feel like you have a direct in-person impact. But uh, even at PN events, I'm like, I'm just going to come for my time. You know what I mean? I'll come for my one hour and then I'll meet some folks and then I got to go because this uh, literally, you know, early in my career, uh, I called it speaker's flu, where I would go do a weekend seminar and I would need three full days to recover. And my voice, like it felt like the flu, like I would have symptoms of the flu just from being around people and talking that much. I actually have a funny story about that that ties all this in. So talking about introverts. So uh, Dean and I, along with Dean Somerset and our partner, John Chung, we hosted a, and, uh, and Hannah Gray, there were five of us, and now it's chopped down a bit. Um, last year, we had a conference here in Edmonton. And so I'm far and away the most outgoing extrovert out of all five of us. It's not even close. And then we chose a whole bunch of guests, mostly Canadian, Lee Boyce, we got Lee Peel, Greg Knuckles, mm -hmm. Dean himself presented down the list. And everybody was quite introverted. 
And so that left me, I was on the entire (laughs) weekend connecting people, getting people to, you know, engage at the mixer. I was the MC of the whole thing. Anyway, and I started not feeling very well just at this after dinner on the Sunday. So I went home and I actually got hammered with the worst flu that I've had in years just because I was so amped up. And probably like all those shaking hands or whatever and, and everything yeah. came from it. But I was completely wiped out. So I can understand that completely. Yeah. There's and a lesson this is here. The thing. Like, yes, I think, have, I have think some more extroverted people. Yeah. And I, I think there's I think there's a, an increased susceptibility to sickness. But I I literally thought I would get sick every time. And then I realized I'm not actually sick. I didn't get the flu. This <laughs> is the consequence of being in front of people and talking for that much okay that's not worth the trade-off you know what i mean like this has to be done a different way for me and again like the meta principle here is again for coaches aspiring entrepreneurs business owners whatever like there's a there's a set of venn diagram you know venn diagram with a set of spheres that you if if you do this right you can find the overlap between who they are, the people you hope to serve, who you are, the unique things you can bring to the world, right? In the on the term and the terms that you want to do them on. And if you can find the perfect middle ground, that overlap there, I mean, that's what we're talking about in terms of like meaningful, rewarding, sustainable career, right? Where it's on your terms, serving the people that you want to serve the way that you want to serve them. You know, now it's not easy. It takes a lot of first personal development, second of all, audience understanding. Uh, But if you get there, it's a phenomenal, I mean, it's what we all, whether we have articulated it in our minds, well or not, aspire towards. And that's why a lot of us who thrash around early in our careers, like, I'm going to try this. No, I hated that. I thought I might like it, but I didn't, are actually looking for whether we say it that way or not. We're looking for this sort of perfect overlap between who I am, who they are, and the terms that I want to interact between me and them. And if we can get that, it's a beautiful place. And, you know, most people in the world, this this thinking isn't even an option to them. But if you're listening to this and you've got, you know, a $600 to $1,200 device in your pocket that you're listening to it on and some headphones and you spend your free time listening to health and fitness, media and podcasts and stuff, you're probably in that tiny sliver of the world that can self-actualize in that way, which is exciting. Yeah, but the crazy crazy thing is is the amount of options. Like you you say, like, oh, like you kind of had the forward thinking. I would say it's almost different at this point because anyone who kind of jumps in can have access to all those things that you did, blogs, videos, online education, seminars. Like they can do that because they've seen it. they're, They're exposed to it. And I would say it might be harder to find what you're good at because everyone thinks that they need to do it a certain way and they can do it. Like to do that, at the time in which you did it, you had to build a vaulting. You had to start writing because no mm. one would come to these events and like there was no one online kind of going right. through these videos. So it's kind of cool to see the difference, but the meta principles are probably the things that matter the most. And I bet they get skipped a lot with a lot of the mm. new entrepreneurs coming up because they're, well, they're yeah. exposed to everything. Yeah, spe- specifically the mass exposure to tools, mm-hmm. right? Like nowadays, all the tools are, I, I mean, they're jammed down your throat. Like back when, you know, back when we started, like I, you know, Phil fortunately had a systems design engineering degree. So he was building websites for IBM and places like that before we met. 
so he taught me how to code the, our first website. Like, but the very first website we did, we had to write HTML code. There was no like plug and play easy applications for this, right? So nowadays, it's the the techniques are jammed down your throat, such that I think if you're young and you're just getting started, you don't know that there's meta thinking involved, right? You're just like, cool, websites are easy now. Fire that up, great, got a website built. Okay, gotta get an audience, all right, cool. Facebook for that, right? Oh, I can pay for ads. So these are all techniques, you know? And just to give you an example, like whenever I talk about, let's say marketing now, right? People's brains automatically rush right to, you know, paid social media activity, right? And what, what I call marketing is tell everyone about it, right? I mean, I think there's basically three principles of business. All business can be summarized by these three things. One, know what people want and are willing to pay for, which is a whole domain of, of expertise you have to develop. Two, uh, make something awesome, remarkable to deliver that. And then three, tell everyone about it with a little asterisk. It's not everyone, right? Because Super Bowl ad is tell everyone, right? Costs $30 million. Tell everyone who wants to buy that thing. You know what I mean? About it. Um, and so whenever I talk to tell every, everyone about it, that's where everyone rushes into paid advertising, particularly social nowadays. But those are just techniques, right? They're, they're tactics. Uh, I start people off like this. Pretend there's no Facebook and Instagram. And um, how would you do the actual thing I'm saying? Tell everyone about it, right? Tell everyone about your awesome new product or service. Like you could pick up the phone and call the people that you know. You could write a letter. You could write an email. You can flyer all the cars at the Walmart parking lot, right? How could you tell everyone about it without Facebook and Instagram, because before these things existed, there were folks out there trying to tell everyone about it, right? So there must be ways. So we need to start with this thought exercise of meta principles. How do you reach all the people who might care about your thing? Okay, not all the ideas are going to be great. Like maybe you don't have a lot of phone numbers. So calling everyone isn't going to get you very far. But by making a list of all the ways I could tell everyone about it, it reminds me of a set of books I read in the early 2000s called guerrilla marketing. And that was the whole premise. If you don't have big advertising dollars, which most people working in health and fitness don't, right? There's only a few companies who do. Um, how can you get the word out? It's this idea of guerrilla, you know, sort of underground, using word of mouth, using clever tactics to get in front of people in, in ways that aren't very costly is how people ought to be thinking. But again, nowadays, there's more opportunity than ever, but there's more competition than ever. But the sleight of hand is companies are telling you about their stuff on how to build a website and how to spend on Facebook. Like you're the uh, consumer being marketed to and you're being tricked a little bit into tactics over principles. It's, it's, it's actually just, it, it reminds me of, um, because you're essentially looking at the essence and my wife and I were watching the show called Dragon's Den, but essentially they go on and they pitch ideas. It's kind of like Shark Tank for, yep. um, for the U.S. But anyway, totally. The ones who've been like, like that have killed, killed the presentations and got deals were it's usually the French Canadians or the English second language learners because they have to, like when they pitch, they're like just getting to the point into the essence of it. And I'm like, that's mm -hmm. brilliant because usually, and not usually, but there's a lot of people who just kind of just 
go on and on and on about stuff that doesn't matter. And a lot of the French Canadians, because they're it's in English speaking, we're, we're, I'm like, that, they explained it so well. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me of that because like you can have all this stuff and it's, it almost ends up being noise and it doesn't get what you want anyways. Mm-hmm. I think there's another thing to take from all this too. I've actually moved myself so we don't have background noise. Uh, hopefully the echo is, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm at Evolve right now. And all this talk about all the effort that it took the steps people had to take to get themselves out there and their names out there without the ease of the internet. Now, looking around the industry and where all those barriers are removed and we have this ubiquitous access and we have a massive glut of people, while that allows a lot of people with good quality information to reach an audience, it also allows a lot of people who haven't had to go through all those barriers who may not necessarily have the quality or the credibility to do the same thing. Do you have any thoughts about that dichotomy and how to navigate it for the end listener user? Yeah, I mean, I I don't bemoan uh, the fact that there's bad information in the industry, right? Um, The gateway to having people provide bad information in mass is wide enough for good information to enter also. You know what I mean? So like you said, once upon a time, almost no one could get through any gate to provide information, right? Like the gate was too small, the barriers too high. Nowadays, the internet's provided so many amazing, wonderful things that if the, one of the only trade-offs is that there's a lot of bad information too, I'm willing to deal with that trade-off and I'm not gonna complain about it, right? Gosh, what innumerable benefit has all this information age brought us? I mean, it's so phenomenal. So complaining about it seems uh, a horrible waste of energy and time. Uh, with that said, I think it's then incumbent on the people with good information to drown out the bad. You know, I mean, that's what we often said at PN. If people don't find us, who will they find? Well, I shudder to think at what they're going to find, right? So uh, let's, ma- let's be loud enough. And this is how you, you know, convince your coaches that we need to spend on marketing, that we need to get good at sales, you know? Um, that is a particular dichotomy, right? People who are scientists and people who are coaches generally feel squeamish at conversations about resources being devoted to or trainings toward or um, you know, any mention of, uh, let's say, crafting a story around what we do so that it can be effective marketing and sales. But the rationale, if you're in an ethical place, is if they don't find us look at what else they're going to find. Screw that. We're going to make sure they find us, you know? And so that's, that, that's always been a really important cornerstone of what we do. And, you know, people who are cynical will say, oh, that, that company is so popular. This company is so popular because they're great at marketing, right? As if that's a pejorative kind of statement, right? And for me, it's just like, hey, great at marketing with terrible uh, service delivery is bad. Great at marketing with erroneous information is bad, but gosh, don't you want the companies that have good information, tremendous service to be great at marketing also? Otherwise it's the shitty ones who are getting all the attention and attracting all the people that we're here to help. So for me, it's just, this is what's incumbent upon any entrepreneur or any business. Get good at this part too, right? Not or, but also. Would you have changed anything? Like, cause now I look back and like, even now one of the hardest parts of, I guess, being the person giving the good information, cause you feel like you need to kind of block up the noise. The hardest part is hitting critical mass 
and that's hard without being like super flashy and using buzzwords and all that stuff. But looking back, would you have changed anything based on the way you did it? Because obviously we're looking at like you said early 2000s, like right, like we're talking a long time. Mm-hmm. Would you have changed it, or like, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would have done differently marketing wise? Yeah, probably not really. I mean, um, there's uh, there no. I mean, PN happened the exact way that that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted it to happen. You know what I mean? Or that like. Uh, I could have never projected that it would have been this big. I could have never projected that it would have been as popular and successful as it was, but we didn't start it to be commercially successful, right? Like Phil and I started it because it's what we like doing. It was within our unique ability sets and it fit in with our purpose and our values and, um, and it, people seem to like it, you know? And I mean, it feels like there was an inevitability to it now, uh, but when we wrote the first certification, um, literally every, you know, personal training and strength and conditioning organization told their people not to do nutrition certifications. Like the entire industry was influencing people away from what we did, right? Because at the time it was considered out of scope of practice. Now, what gave me sort of uh, heart and emboldened me to do it anyway was I'm uh, close with Gray Cook and we had traveled together and spoken together and uh, Gray had done what Precision Nutrition had done just some, a couple, five, 10 years earlier, right? So he was in the physical therapy world. He was teaching essentially physical therapy techniques to strength and conditioning coaches and personal trainers. Uh, When he started doing it, the physical therapy orgs were like, you need to stop. They sent him letters and threatened lawsuits and this is out of scope of practice. And Gray's like, well, number one, that's dumb because we're talking about movement. And if that's out of scope of practice for personal trainers and strength coaches, I don't know what you want them to do, right? And then second of all, um, they want it so badly. Like we're not, we're not giving them like post-surgical patients. We're giving them people who are discharged from the rehab setting and other people who are considered otherwise healthy. So they need to be able to bridge this gap because otherwise there's this huge space. It's like a rift between the work that they're doing in in clinical rehab settings and personal training, right? So I had long conversations with him and I felt like nutrition was the very next thing, right? Like once we handled, we'll call it like healthy movement, like both screening and then sort of that gap between, you know, unhealthy movement and, you know, what, the three of us might do in like a performative sense in the gym, right? Um, the next thing that comes is fuel and physiology, biochemistry, right? And then, you know, I think the next wave, you know, we're starting to see it like sleep and stress management, right? So, uh, and so when we started the PN thing, that was, you know, at least the education side for, for coaches, we got the same thing. So when we started getting those letters and the pushback, I'm like, oh, this is exactly what happened to Gray. This is perfect. It's like, this script going, you know, just, it's, it's just deja vu with a different subject matter. And so um, anyway, that, I won't go on and on, but. Did people get mad at you? You seem like so nice and calm, but I can see like back then you getting in like almost fist fights over this stuff with like. The oh yeah. I mean, I was, I would be on the stage with a group of dietitians talking about these things about how important it is yeah. to hand 
some basic lifestyle information to the coaches who are the frontline providers for health and fitness for their clients. And just like the, it'd be six people just turning all their chairs and facing me with anger and animosity. Uh, but again, what heartened me was that the audiences yeah. were never against that. They were always like, of course, this is, this is stupid. And, and you have to understand, like, there's no amount of top-down pressure unless you live in an autocratic government that prevents the mass of consumers getting what they want. Like, nothing prevents that, you know? I can attest to what you're saying earlier because this is one of the things that I remember early in my career taking away from you. We kind of forget that, you know, nutrition as part of the personal training process on the gym floor wasn't always there. I remember it was you very specifically advocating that the personal training model as it was, was going to need to expand into more of a, I believe the word you used was concierge sort of service that encompassed nutrition uh, and other things like sleep and self-care. And that's one of the reasons why I remember doing PN level one uh, years ago. I think I probably did it seven or even eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I was one of the early ones in, in my space here in Edmonton as a personal trainer in a commercial gym who was bringing nutrition into the conversations with the clients because I felt that you know, if you wanted to set yourself apart as a trainer, you needed to be very skilled in this realm. And mm -hmm. I think there's a, it, it's so easy. A lot of trainers would, would just say, they would just turn around and say, you know, hey, I can't talk about nutrition because it's outside my scope. Right. And I think that's less about any fear of legal or ethical ramifications and more just they didn't know it. So it was an easy excuse to just say, hey, I don't do that. Well, yeah. I was, when I was at Ben's place with Eric Helms, it was like one of the things that stood out to me was like his, he called like asymmetrical risk, but like, like even now with sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's out of scope and blah, 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 blah. It's like, what's the risk of telling someone to sleep eight hours? Same mm -hmm. thing with like a lot of the basic simple diet stuff is like, are you really doing any harm? And like, right. what's, what's the upside to it? So it, it's interesting because there is an evolution of seeing the risk reward ratio because it's almost like the old guard or like you said, the top down approach, they're just holding on to this thing. And yeah, the and benefit of like kind of letting some of that stuff out would help more people because it's, it's hard to get into a dietitian. It costs money to get into a dietitian and telling someone to eat more protein and like control your calories. Yeah. Is that, are you really out of scope? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Well, it's I mean, so there's two things, right? One is obviously financial incentives, yeah, right? If I, if I, um, live and work in the dietetic space, the idea that there would be this group of other professionals uh, who are more poorly trained than me, which is functionally true. I mean, if you are a dietitian, you've done a four-year degree in dietetics and you've done a clinical in internship and you've passed a government certified sort of board examination. So a personal trainer who does a, you know, even a precision nutrition kind of certification is less educated than you are in terms of amount of hours learning this material. Now, whether the material is on par in terms of quality or whatever, irrelevant, it's just your perspective will be, I'm a dietitian. I've done all this training. I've been certified by multiple bodies, by this university, by my state or provincial government. Um, and now these people are going to take business from me and they are less educated than me and they are less prepared than me. I totally get why you'd want to dig in. You know, it makes complete sense. Like being mad at dietitians for feeling reticence to accept <laughs> our ability to talk about this is, is silly. Um, and then the other thing is just old ways, right? And, and uh, old ways, uh, I remember learning this in, in uh, a philosophy of science class in undergrad. 
right? The, basically, there have been a number of individuals over time who have studied the change of paradigms, like in the scientific world, right? So how do paradigms change? There's, there's a, a model uh, which talks about scientific paradigms change through like a linear progression of new studies being added in a body of research and each new study contributes a bit more knowledge and eventually sort of we stair step our way to paradigm change but there's this there's this other guy um who who talks thomas kuhn who talks about no 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 scientific paradigms change when you blow up the old one right they don't work in a linear positive way you have to literally blow up an old theory and then you know, come to light with one that better describes reality. Um, Often isn't it the old generation of academics that are the status quo actually kind of die off? You, you yeah, is one of the major catalysts for that. That's shift. right. Ben yeah, also said you have to die or retire. Basically, the old guard has to die or retire uh, before the new uh, ideas can actually take root in a field. And it's it's because the new guard are generally the guard, right? They're, they're the ones who are deans of academic programs. They're the ones who are chair people at scientific conferences. It's nothing nefarious. It's just simply when you've been in the field for 30 or 40 years, you've made many positive contributions. You're the, you're the folks who decide who's going to speak at the conferences. You're the folks who are going to become fact or decide who becomes faculty members at key research universities. And if these new kind of uh, renegade thinkers are coming up with theories, especially that are starting to debunk yours right that's it's really really, really hard to give them jobs and give them keynote speaking gigs right there's like and a so, problem now where they're like not even like a lot of the times like they don't even publish null findings because mm -hmm. like it kind of goes against the stuff and it's, it's almost like to the point where like you look at like you said the rds and they're, they're holding on to this incentivized it's almost to the point where there's some publications that are incentivized by like pushing an agenda and it, it just it, it must be frustrating when you're trying to push into that but i think like Obviously, you did it. And, and also, like, again, I mean, you can choose frustration yeah. uh, or you can understand how things change. I mean, uh, right now we're talking in, in the midst of, you know, a very powerful uh, movement about human rights right now. Right. And um, and again, there's cause for frustration. There's also needs to be an understanding of how change actually happens, how long it takes, like if we riot for the next one year, will equality be achieved? The answer is no, it, irrespective of whether rioting or uh, peaceful protesting were the right things. It's just, they don't, things don't change on that timeline ever. We just look to history to see that. So scientific theories don't change quickly and social programs don't change quickly. And the distribution of funds from governments don't change quickly. And our perception of people who are different than us don't change quickly. That doesn't mean we don't do the work towards it. We just have to understand and then make the decision. And, and I'll, I'll depoliticize this really quickly, you know, and say, um, you know, I have a really good friend, um, one, of the, one of the chief ass kickers I've ever known, right? She um, has an MD uh, in a specialized rehab medicine. She's got a PhD in exercise movement, uh, stuff like that. Uh, she has several Olympic medals. Like, you know, you don't meet more accomplished people than this person, right? She's won the Olympics a bunch of times and has an MD and has a PhD. She just kicks all asses wherever she goes. And um, I remember having a chat with her because she's been in school forever, right? About career and uh, 
I was doing my PhD when she was doing hers, right? So I had gotten out and done stuff in the workforce and she was still educating. Uh, and we were just talking about career. One of her great passions is sort of exercise as medicine, right? She wants to see, because uh, she, she's so credible, right? Like she can actually be the kind of person who walks into the medical community and say, hey, we need to look at exercise more seriously. Hey, we need to think about prescribing exercise more seriously. Hey, we need to affiliate with people who are trained in exercise more seriously. Um, so she's the right person for the job. And I, But the one question I had for her was, okay, so when you die or retire, right? So she's in her 40s like I am. Uh, so let's say you're, you, you live long, you're, you continue to be vigorous, you live to 95, and you work all that time, right? So over the next 50 years, you work on this. Are you okay dying knowing that your vision still won't come to light? You know, because that's the reality we're facing. You, the, the medical community will never embrace exercise on the level that you want them to in the next 50 years because things don't happen that fast. Are you okay dying and knowing that your vision hasn't come to light, but that you were a key person pushing that snowball down the hill and giving it the momentum that one day it will become that thing, right? And so that to me is, is something I think about a lot. I talk to professionals about a lot. Um, there are some things you can do in the course of a human life and others that you can't, right? What do you need more? Do you need to see your vision come to fruition? Or do you need, um, are you okay starting the ball in motion, getting no credit for it, and, but being part of the uh, change that eventually will take place generations from when you got when involved. did that come to light for you? Like, <laughs> because I, I'm maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but like, I, I can't see like 20 year old John with that sort of foresight. Like when did, like, how did that come about? And maybe you did, maybe you just were like always had this vision. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I've always, again, being an introvert means you stay home a lot. And when you stay home a lot, you need stuff to do. So you read a lot of books. Is what, that's what I did anyway. Yeah. There wasn't like Netflix and Disney Plus and uh, Amazon Prime and all the things. So I just read a lot of books. And so, you know, when I was an undergrad, you know, I did a pre-med undergrad degree. But I did, I did minors in um, philosophy, psychology, African-American history, sports psychology. Like I just, I took double the classes as anyone else. I, I had been a terrible, terrible student in high school. I was an alcoholic and I was drunk and high most days. And then I had a break in between where some things happened and I got wake up calls. And that's the first thing that sort of brought me to the gym. And so when I went back to school for university, like I had been devoted to bodybuilding and I've learned all these lessons about discipline and drive and hard work. And I had success in bodybuilding. And uh, so when I came back to school, school was easy, man. Yeah. It really was. And that's not because I was innately gifted. It was just like, gosh, I've done a bunch of things over the last couple of years that required like a pretty tremendous work ethic. Uh, school is pretty easy when you have this ethic. So I just double up on the classes and take more than everyone else. So probably by the, by the end of university, I was asking bigger questions about my life. And it, I remember like the real, there was a real pivot point because I had, a, I had a pre-med degree, so the next logical thing is go do med school, right? And I remember, how, and, and I don't quite know where it came from because I didn't plan on asking these kinds of questions, but I remember I applied to med schools, I got in, and then one day I asked myself, am I gonna like this? 
Like, am I going to like med school? And I was like, no, no, it was just so clear to me. I was not going to like it. And then why am I going to do it? Well, because I come from an immigrant family. And when you come from an immigrant family, you become a doctor or a lawyer because that's the way to display status. Um, and also doctors and lawyers generally do pretty well in any culture. Right. Um, and then number two, hard, like I thought it would be hard. And at that point in my life, I was challenging myself with the hardest things I could think of. Right. I want to, I want to win a national bodybuilding title. Okay, cool. I want to win a national powerlifting title. Okay, cool. Go do that. All right. Now what's the hardest academic journey you can go on? Probably pre-med to med school. Right. Um, okay. I'm going to do that. But then I had this moment of, but I'm not going to enjoy that, which, you know, what, if I were to have, want to have fun with this, what would I do instead? Right. So then I, I gave up the med school to do an exercise science masters, which everyone thought was totally nuts. But, <laughs> Back then too. but again, that, that was really the first time in my life. And I think this infusion of un, like philosophy and psychology, and then um, just questioning my, like knowing myself, you know, like people talk a lot about mindfulness nowadays and, you know, meditations become a part of that conversation. But I remember being exposed to meditation through sports psychology in like 1992. So that's when I was, that's when I first started this sort of doing, you know, mind body scans, doing meditation, doing mindfulness work um, before, you know, it, my friends thought I was totally weird and kooky for doing this kind of thing. But, uh, but that's, and I, and I think, you know, again, me, this isn't me being like, everyone should meditate. But really, the things that people say about meditation are real. They, they come true. You, you, your ability to uh, see through the distractions of everyday emotional roller coasters, you know, your ability to take a, an extra beat uh, between feeling and reacting, um, the, your ability to ask bigger questions of yourself and the world and your place in it, uh, it, it can be a vehicle for that, right? So, so I think it was, it was kind of reading you know, being exposed to great thinkers, doing the self-work as well, um, and uh, kind of all led to this. And then it just, you know, then you just keep practicing it because you're like, wow, this is important. It's fun. I, I like being valuable to others in this way. And gosh, it helps me charter my own path well. I had a thought, and it kind of goes back to our, our previous conversation. I don't know. I've never heard you describe it this way, but do you ever realize that what you did with PN was disruption of the entire dietetics industry. I mean, we talk about disrupting now in terms of Uber or Airbnb and what have you, but I, I think of what you did to them almost like what Napster did to the record companies. Just so you, you, have the, you have this industry that's sort of like stuck in its way and it was resentful of personal trainers creeping in, but you realize, well, hey, there's an opportunity here. And all of a sudden now, I, I don't even have any relationships with local um, oh. dietitians, and it almost seems like they, they seem dug in to not jump into this marketing space. There are exceptions in our greater industry, but they don't seem to, and they almost seem to have a slight antagonistic relationship with personal trainers like we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. but what that's done, unfortunately, is it's left all this space for PN to come and dominate, and then, you know, going earlier to, you know, you stepping away from the brand, look at how many big companies have followed in your model. I can't believe for a second that uh, Renaissance periodization isn't heavily influenced by what you built. Uh, I think that Stronger You, which Dean is a part of, is definitely heavily influenced. Macros, Inc. And these guys are technically your competitors, but 
they've all done very similar things and no one in those organizations has actually stood out as being a brand larger than it. Mike Gizertel at RP, sure, he's a big name, but he goes out of his way to really highlight the other members of his team. Mm -hmm. So have you ever thought about yourself as a disruptor? And let's take this into a question. What would you say for people who are listening to this up and coming, what kind of attitudes or, or how would they look at this whole situation for themselves to um, grow a, as a brand? Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, the disruptor thing, uh, that wasn't really a word when we started, right? That's, that's kind of a new, it's a modern kind of born out of maybe Silicon Valley ethic um, that kind uh, of term. Um, and so, and, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. I, I think it's, it's, but it feels to me a descriptive term rather than something one aspires to. It's what you do to describe a company that's done something noteworthy rather than what you start with trying to be, you know what I mean? And I think that's, I, it might just feel like semantics, but I, I don't think it is, you know, uh, it reminds me of this idea. People will ask me like, you know, Oh, John Berardi, cool. I want to do what you do when I grow up. Like I'm a young college student or whatever. I want to do what you do. And I'm like, well, be careful with that because I didn't want to do what I do when I was your age. Right? Like I, uh, if, and, and you might not even know what I do. Like you, you have a very, very surface level understanding of what it is that I do. So let's be careful with these kind of things. But there was a moment where the disruptor kind of idea did occur to me and, and I'll, I'll describe it after. So, um, so in 20, let's say 16, Phil and I started to realize that PN was getting too big for us to, to lead on our own, um, very specifically financially. Right. I mean, you have two people whose whole net worth is rolled up in the organization. Right. Like we're not rich guys outside of PN. Right. Um, we do OK, but but that's it. And, you know, Precision Nutrition's monthly expenses are well more than our net worth. You know what I mean? So literally, if something bad were to happen and thankfully it never did, we wouldn't be able to support the organization just paying salaries for one month. You know what I mean? Like this thing is too big for us. It's grown too, too quickly. Um, so we need some help. So that's when we started looking for partners. Uh, we ended up finding a private equity company who purchased the company from us. And wh when that happens, uh, you learn, a, you get a crash course in finance yeah. really fast. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know what a company's worth. I never even thought of PN as a saleable asset until this whole thing happened. And I know like intellectually I could have, but PN was always just this, yeah, it was just this weird thing we did. It was based on me and my weirdness and my, it, uh, my desire to not travel. And, you know, um, that my old thing was just, you see this chair, like this specific chair I'm sitting in, like I've had this chair since we started PN. And I'm like, when someone says, Hey, uh, John Brody, can you participate in a thing? My first question is, can I do it from this chair? You know, if yes, then we can continue talking. If no, I probably don't want to do it because it means I have to get on an airplane or go somewhere to do it. Um, so this whole company is just me and my, my chair thing and all this stuff, right? So this is a, an asset someone else would want to buy? Nah, but it turns out that it, was, it is, you know, and, and someone else did want to buy it and they wanted to spend a lot of money on it. And so when we started looking at the financials of comparable organizations, we realized like, wow, PN is a bigger company than ACSM and NSCA combined, 
right? And these were the big influential companies when I was coming up in the academic world, right? Like you go to the ACSM annual conference every year and you go to the NSCA conference every year. Uh, PN is bigger than all the dietetics organizations combined. And that's when it sort of dawned on me like, holy crap, uh, <laughs> we built something bigger than every uh, academic institution or society or whatever that I've ever been a member of. Uh, that's crazy. That, that was when it felt disruptive to me. It, but, but only kind of in my own mind, right? I don't want to disrupt any of those businesses. I think there's enough desire for education and there's enough money for everyone that I'm talking about to thrive. You know, there, there, there isn't a scarcity of people wanting, continuing it, especially now. The, the, one of the market segments that thrived, both during the 2007-2008 uh, economic crash, you know, due to loans and mortgages and that kind of thing, interest rates, uh, and then the crash due to COVID and what's happening right now, um, both the market segments that skyrocket are education because in times of uncertainty and job loss, people pay for mm, shoring up their credentials, right? They pay to learn more, to maybe have more job security the next time this kind of thing happens. Um, so I, I think even now there's enough money for everyone there to thrive. So disruption just feels a little bit um, scarcity minded to me. Whereas, you know, I feel like oh, all these companies can do really well. But it was the first moment in my own mind, uh, it disrupted this particular notion of um, what the influential organizations could be in our space. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that was the big thing is it's not necessarily a role model, but like even like the whole personal trainer thing, it's like you, you go into it and you think it's like you're going to be a personal trainer, but like it can turn into these things because there's examples of it, which is yeah. it's hard to do unless you kind of disrupt that to say, hey, like if you're in fitness, there is money if you like have like obviously if you do things right, but there is that end of that goal could happen. Yes. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was my gig. Like I, I graduated undergrad. I moved beach florida i started a personal training business that's what i did and then i paid my way through masters and phd training clients you know so that that was that was my background and that's what i did all the way through and pn's first big product was essentially uh you know a diy way of teaching how to train yourself and then we started a coaching program which was a online geographically unlimited you know personal training option right so that's really what it was born out of, just the desire to help more people uh, with what we knew. It's like, so it's, I don't know, it's, it's just like, I, I'm not sure how many times you've told that story. It's just kind of cool to see how it goes in, especially like as we're sitting right now, where I, it just feels like there's a lot of stuff coming through the pipeline, especially now with COVID and everyone's going online. And you're talking about a time when online, like you said, it was 15 minutes to get a damn article up. Yeah. And it kind of comes full circle to that thing where like those meta principles still matter and like your well, story is essentially. Yeah. Well, let me share something group. like specifically to that. Like, and again, I, I've had some good people kind of float across my path for, you know, I, I don't know how or, or why, but uh, there was a guy who he was, uh, I think he read my articles at T Nation back in the day. He's not in the field at all, but he was just interested in, you know, health and fitness development and strength and stuff like that. And um, I think we started corresponding on email, you know, and then uh, I think we met up a few times and then he ended up being my neighbor. I lived in Austin, Texas for a while and he was my neighbor. So he, he, it was uh, myself, 
and then right next door to me was a guy who worked for PN at the time. His name's Carter. He was, he's still one of my closest friends. And then on the other side is this guy, Jeff. So Jeff, you know, he's been essentially retired ever since I've known him. And I met him when he was like in his mid thirties. And, uh, so I was like, what does this guy do? Well, he doesn't do anything. Well, what did he do, right? So he had written a book called Stress-Free Success, right? And the idea was how to double your income while taking an extra day off a week, right? Now, this is a tired, you know, uh, cliche nowadays, you know, but he did this like before there was any of this, right? And he's like the OG internet marketer because there was an internet when he started doing internet marketing techniques. But what he did, and again, seeing it play out in this previous generation is so interesting because it teaches you principles, not tactics. So what he did was he, like me as an introvert, he hated going out and selling his book. So he, he stopped publishing it and he turned it into a course. Okay. And so then what he did was he partnered with um, specialty industries uh, and he partnered with like, um, I don't know, a well-known figure in each of those industries. So in chiropractic, he partnered with someone who is like a chiropractor influencer in the mortgage space, same thing in real estate, same thing. So then he just, they custom tailored this curriculum to all these niche industries, right? And instead of an email newsletter, cause no one had email at the time, they got faxes. So think of all the newsletters you're subscribed to now, but instead of getting it in your email inbox, he would just fax marketing materials to their offices right? And they were long form sales letters. They were really well done and compelling. Like they spoke specifically to the needs of a overworked mortgage broker an overworked, you know, real estate agent, an overworked chiropractor, you're promising them, Hey, I'm going to help you make more money from your practice while actually taking some time off to be with your family or pursue your hobbies and passions. Um, and just like mapping this over several industries, the guy absolutely crushed it. I mean, he, he, his service delivery was faxes plus a phone call with his groups, you know, and you just think like, it seems so primitive and simple, uh, so much so that it's easy to look down on it. Right. Uh, it, it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, you ever look at the great works of, let's say architecture or, you know, city infrastructure of like, you know, remote peoples. Right. Um, and you think like, how do those dopes do all this? You know what I mean? Like, it's the first thought that modern people have in their heads. Like, how did those primitive people build the pyramids? You know what I mean? How, how could they have possibly done it? Or like, look at some of the, um, the sculptures, the artwork of, you know, the Roman times, you know, there's, a, there's just this feeling that like the older stuff, like the people couldn't have been as smart or advanced as us, right? And so, and I'm not saying that's true, but it occurs to a lot of people. And I think that happens. Like we get seduced by modernity and we, and we then get wrapped up in the techniques of modern times rather than the principles. So this guy was so influential for me because I was like, wow, okay, cool. Like, how can we do the current technology equivalent of that? Right. And, um, and again, like, it was also like an example of how you can do a piece of work and like quadruple, quintuple dip it. Like, how can I make money doing one piece of excellent work with slight modifications for different groups? It really was knowing this guy was like a really like a, a functional business 
MBA kind of a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you, you see how, um, you know, again, I, he lived two doors down from me. We hung out all the time. I saw under the hood of the business, you know, so that I could see really what principles were at stake there. But it's interesting that, again, that comes full circle to now where you mentioned it, but I was kind of alluding to it is that like, we're full of tools. And I like that you said principles, not tactics, but it's like, it's going to be interesting to see when the shift back to principles go. Cause there's only so many tools before as an industry and like multiple industries get smarter with the tools that are coming out. Cause everything's a new shiny object, but at the heart of it all will still remain the principles. They're just not sexy right now. And so it'll be, it'll be kind of, I just wonder when that's going to happen and maybe it's always happening. And the few people see the light or have a neighbor yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> and they right. can kind of sift think- through that. I, I think it's always happening, right? Yeah. I, I think that um, in the beginning of your career, you just don't, you're not hanging around the people who are yeah. using the principles and you don't have the language to converse with them. You know, I remember Alan Cosgrove, who's a good friend, said this one time. He's like, oh man, I remember this one time I sat down with Bill Parisi. I don't know if you guys know who Bill Parisi is, but, you know, he had these uh, very well known speed schools. Um, and, you know, they were doing NFL combine training and they were training pro athletes and they were training kids and they had a very successful uh, business of, you know, training centers, you know, uh, franchise early version of franchise, you know, training centers for young athletes and pro athletes. And then they did a franchise business and then they did a lot of education. So Bill really is a legend in that space and he's a great guy. Um, and Alan was young and Alan was like, I sat down with Bill young in my career and I was asking him about like, where to put the squat racks in my new gym, right? And he's like, I'm kicking myself now because I could have asked him so many more pertinent questions, like relevant to the success of my company. Uh, and my response was, yeah, but that's where you were at the time. Yeah. Like higher level principles might not have helped you because you needed to figure out how to, how much, you know, how to afford the squat rack and where to put it at the time, right? So um, I think, I often nowadays think of life in these kind of uh, evolutionary phases. And, and when you're at an early phase, you're not there yet. Principal thinking is maybe not what you should be doing right now. Uh, when getting one additional client is the thing that'll keep your business afloat. You know what I mean? So I think, um, but knowing that you will have to do that thinking soon, knowing that you should start high level planning what strategy might look like is really critical because a lot of people just go through their career trying to get the next client. Right. And that's where the story matters. And like why we bring people like you on, because I guess that's our way of kind of, here's the story. It might not make sense to you right now, but like, Mm -hmm. again, it's that role model, like this can happen. And it's, it's just exposure. Like you said, to the right people. That's right. And you guys have read, that is, yes, you guys have read books that we read it the first time and it was, I don't know why this is such a big deal. And then you went back to it and you're like, no, maybe I get it now. And then you went back to it and you're like, this is the most genius thing I've ever read, you know? And the same with movies and the same, uh, you know, we had this saying at PN, which was, you know, like we knew our program was good. I mean, we, we have, you know, 200,000 clients worth of data points. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and we have data points, millions and millions of data points. We know the program is good, but sometimes it's not the client's time. And that's what we would say. Hey, I need to drop out now for whatever reason. And we're like, that's okay. If now isn't your time, that's fine, right? The porch light will always be on. The front door will always be open. When it is your time, come back and we'll give it another go, 
right? And I think about that with everything, with all the learning we can do in our lives. Sometimes you walk away from a thing and go, hey, it just wasn't my time for that thing. Maybe it will be later. And I think that's the mark of a critical thinker. You say, maybe it will be later. Maybe I'll have to revisit this at a later something point oh of me, you know, and then it'll make more sense and then it'll add more value. I have a thought uh, because one of my favorite stories, in fact, it's probably the only story I ever remember specifically from any podcast I've ever listened to. It was you with Kevin Larrabee of the FitCast. I told Jason Crow this thing. It's where you described a sit down with an old friend who said they had the perfect system to lose weight and get in shape. Now they're telling this to you and yeah. giving your profession, they knew what you did and they went on to just, and they weren't in shape and they went on to describe how it meant brute force exercise and brute force nutrition but they didn't have the time so they didn't start and the story always stuck with me and i paraphrase it with credit uh in a lot of social media stuff i write over the years and it just means that sometimes people get really stuck in a way of doing things but mm -hmm. they never act on it so and i love that story and i wanted to see if you could take that a little further yeah totally yeah it was it was actually in a job interview we were hiring for a, a new role um at pn many moons ago and I sat down with this individual and he was telling me about, you know, his, his secret weapon for getting in shape. Right. And it was like running every day. And, uh, this was before keto was so, uh, dominating the landscape, but it was essentially a keto diet. And, um, and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And it, and then it was, you know, I, I'm really well known in the PN circles for asking direct questions that the answers can sometimes be uncomfortable to, but in, but in a very non-judgmental way, right? So, so my response was just, oh, cool. Well, I don't know, forgive me for asking, but how come you're not in great shape right now? And he was just like, oh, um, well, we just had our second child. And he, you know, listed kind of a litany of excuses and um, all, all justifiable too, right? Like if you had to run an hour every day and eat no carbs, when you have a new baby at home, which is your second, and you're uh, starting a new job, you know what I mean? Like all the stressors are piling up. These aren't um, unfounded excuses. They're not weak excuses. These are legitimate excuses for the model that he had built, right? And so the answer was he had a best theoretical option for getting in shape, right? But he didn't have a best doable option for getting in shape, right? And so, it, and, and this is so close to my heart because it, like fitness is easy for me now, if you want to call it that, right? Like this domain of my life is handled, right? Um, but there's other domains in my life where I'm the him or I, there's the danger of me becoming the him. You know what I mean? So how can I um, take domains that I'm new to, right? That I'm a beginner at and not fall like victim to uh, very specific, you know, all or nothing thinking. This way is the best way of doing things thinking. You know, how can I challenge biases, especially in spaces where I'm not a subject matter expert? He wasn't a subject matter expert. He was an expert in a totally different field. And so he did the thing that new people do, like beginners do. They try and seek out the best information providers. They find something that resonates with them. They stick their flag in the sand of that particular approach. Um, and that's a very beginner approach, right? 
um, as you get more intermediate and advanced, you look at things with more nuance. You uh, question your assumptions. Um, so in fitness, it's easy for any coach to be like, ah, oh, why are these idiots doing that, right? Of course, that approach can't work during stressful times of your life. Uh, I'm less interested in that, right? As I am in my own life, where am I going to do the same thing? And how can I not do the same thing? You know, like I'm working on a host of other non-fitness projects now that, um, you know, I'm not operationally involved with PN. So I'm writing some children's books and I'm doing some um, residential housing development. And so as I go into these new spaces, it's really critical. And this is like what learning, you know, I'm entering them with beginner's mind, but trying to port these lessons I've learned from coaching people to coach myself through being a beginner again. You well, it's know, interesting which is, that you talk about like going back to stuff and you talk about movies and all this stuff and you said you can kind of see it once once you kind of know you can see other high level people operating at that and there's this one show and you mentioned disney plus but it was like the making of um mandalorian yeah you see all these high level directors and like the dude that's kind of basically running the disney show in terms of technology and just listening to them talk it's like basically chats about stuff and i'm like god damn like this is the same stuff a lot of the high level people do it just it's interesting to see them. This is a different field, there. right? Yes. It, this is it. Like, as I get exposed to more successful people in different domains, it feels like we're talking about the same things, even though we worked in different subject expertise areas. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? The, the way of seeing problems and solving problems, the way of uh, challenging our assumptions, the way of avoiding uh, implicit biases are similar. You know, that's why, like, you know, a close friend of mine is, um, uh, principal of uh, a couple of Montessori schools and he's a radical thinker and he he's created three schools one for early age one for middle age and then a high school um, it, what he's doing with the high schools is incredible they don't go to a high school building it's all project-based right so they recently put on an art ex exhibit at the local art gallery where they took over the art gallery they they marketed the thing. They made all the art pieces. This is a high group of high school students. They sold all the tickets. So anyway, he's a close friend. And some days it feels like we're talking, I don't know if we're talking about my business or his, because we're talking about the same things and same principles. Incidentally, you brought up the Mandalorian. I watched it recently. I may just alienate a lot of <laughs> listeners, <laughs> but I want to hear Like, did you love that series? Did yeah, you think I did. it was okay? Or did, I, okay, I like because of, and if you go through like the making of it, they're they're basically ripping out the essence and the, yeah. the the foundation of what Star Wars is, and then kind of taking the essence because they had different directors for every episode. Yes, and infusing that into each episode, it was just really cool because it's 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 kind of I didn't want to bring it up, but it's I'm like I'm talking <laughs> fucking thing because essentially yes. it's 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 that meta principles showcased through the artwork to build it. I, just, I liked the making of better than I liked the series yeah, itself. Absolutely, like I liked what they tried to do, yeah. but. Uh, I remember um, The Witcher came out the same time and everyone was comparing the two, right? Mm -hmm. Watching The Witcher. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen them both now and I've watched them both multiple times. And I'm like, gosh, there were only two episodes of The Mandalorian that I actually liked. Yeah. And I really liked The Witcher series. Yeah. And I'm just like, I have the opposite opinion as, as everyone else because everyone else seemed to love The Mandalorian and think it's some of the greatest series TV made in a while. And for me, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but I'm like, eh, there were only really two episodes I liked. So anyway, I was. Well, it, but it, it's funny. I'm like, still I trying to process my feelings because I'm like, I actually agree just, with you. 
because I liked it more. So this is actually, I'm not changing, but I liked it more after watching the watching of, because I was trying to piece together like why they did the series the way they did it. Right. Because it, it it's not all good, but it's kind of all good depending on where you, because they're different directors. And I was yes. like, I liked certain ones better. And I was like, okay, that's why. Where The Witcher was all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's just interesting because like, like you said, it's not going to reach everyone because like the Star Wars moniker is going to just kind of, oh, yeah, Star Wars, it's good. But yeah, it was way mm-hmm. better for me after watching the making of it. Yeah. I think and one this... of the things that happened. Oh, yeah, you go ahead. Yeah. With Witcher versus Mandalorian is number one, you have this iconic Boba Fett type character, even though it's not technically Boba. Yes. Uh, and you, then you have the, the, the baby, the, the child, which everybody just fell in love with and was memed to hell out of. Whereas with The Witcher, you have the popularity of these video games, which are so extraordinary. Now, Henry Cavill really did nail Geralt and Casting Jasper, Dandelion, the bard was perfect. But they actually, they, they biffed on Triss. Uh, Yennefer was pretty good, not quite perfect. And they really didn't explain how the timeline worked early, so it lost some people. But I thought it was a wonderful show. Mm-hmm. But I think The Witcher had a tougher expectation to meet, whereas, in all honesty, I think Star Wars has shit the bed on all its major movies for quite some time. So this was actually, for a lot of people, the best Star Wars product that came out in a long time. Yeah. And see, this is, again, where I, I'm going to make everyone hate me, but... Uh, I really, really liked Rise of Skywalker. I'm like, gosh, everyone loved Mandalorian, hated Rise. I'm the opposite. So I just rewatched I, it too when I got on Disney Plus. And I was so like, I just, I console myself. I say, I have a PhD. It means I'm smarter than everyone else. So I, I'm right. That's, that's the bottom line. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, and this seems like a total tangent from our show, but um, <laughs> this, the, but your point is the exact one that I'm so fascinated by in life and learning and teaching and, and growing is that uh, I take lessons from the series that I watch and the making of those and I port them back into what I do professionally. And, um, you know, David Epstein writes about this in his book, Range. You know, some of the most innovative, I, did I, either of you get a chance to read that book yet? Um, not yet. It's, it's, so I, I told people last year, last year was probably the best book I'd read in three years or something. I mean, he just nails a lot of really important concepts. Uh, and one of them uh, is this idea that uh, the most innovative people uh, don't innovate in a vacuum. They, uh, it, these innovations usually come from analogy, right? So you say, hey, I've had some experiences in a diverse set of um, domains of life right? This is the concept of range. Like, hey, I've dabbled in this. I've dabbled in this. I've dabbled in this. Um, And Ray Dalio talks about this in his book, Principles. Like, Ray calls it another one of those. Like, wisdom is essentially looking at the world and going, hey, that that reminds me of something. Oh, this is another one of those. One of those being something I've seen before, a pattern or a trend or a whatever thing. And, um, And that's what David talks about, too. Innovative people don't pull ideas out of thin air. They just go, hey, uh, I remember when I was on vacation. I remember watching The Mandalorian. Here's how they solve that problem. This problem reminds me a lot of that one. Hmm, I wonder if we could do something similar over here. You know, so you pour seemingly unrelated things into seemingly unrelated areas of your life, whether it's in your relationships, in your parenting, in your leadership, in your uh, business strategy, in your business tactics. Um, and so, this to me is what's really, really uh, something I, I'm striving for and really, really interested in is 
how can I bring lessons from multiple domains to solve problems? Because ultimately, that, that's what we're trying to do when we show up, right? We're trying to figure out how to be good problem solvers. And essentially, conversations, what, what are they except for either a means to get closer with another person or a means to gather information so that I can make better decisions tomorrow than I did today? And that's fundamentally what conversation is. Either we're going we're gonna to exchange some words so that we can feel better connected as people, or I want to gather something so that I can do better tomorrow, right? And I think um, that's what our businesses are. It's a thousand decisions that we have to make consistently, right? So uh, I think getting a wide range of experiences from the books we read to the movies we watch and consistently asking those experiences, whether they're fiction books or whatever, what in here can I use to make better decisions and live better tomorrow are just so critical. And again, this is principle stuff, right? It doesn't tell you what words to write in your next piece of ad copy. It doesn't tell you what decision to make when your gym shut down because of COVID. Um, but it could, you know what I mean? How could we use things unrelated to this, which maybe I haven't had that experience in this domain to port over here to help me, you know, and that's, this is, uh, it's the number one, I think, thing, thing I think about every day. Like I decided to learn the piano this year and I'm consistently asking, what can I use from uh, training myself, from bodybuilding, powerlifting, coaching clients, you know, eating well, uh, what can I use from the gym and from my world uh, to bring over to here to help me either hasten my progress or progress in a better way? But I think that that's probably like if, if, we, if we talk about this whole episode, when we come around full circle, like what could we like impart on people? Because like you said, not everyone's going to be ready. But if you kind of approach everything like that and just like collect experiences, because I think a lot of people that are successful aren't just trainers or that like they've had past or they, they pull mm -hmm. from their experiences. And if you can start to do that from the vantage point of thinking through things or at least debriefing the things you have as opposed to just consuming it. Um, mm -hmm. you may be able to, again, turn that into something down the road and you don't know when that is, but it'll make sense one day. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, that's why I have, I have this next to me. I have hundreds of these all around my house. These, uh, marble composition books where I just consistently am writing things in. And if people look through these, they would be like, what, what does this guy do for a living? Like <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of stuff that's seemingly unrelated in here. I mean, I even write about in my in my book, Changemaker, um, you know, when I was which going great, by the way, which Thank is amazing. You. I cannot recommend it enough. I did the audio. I forgive me for interrupting, but I was going to hijack yeah. this particular point. Uh, I did it on audio when it first came out. And then when Jason sent me uh, a redo over of PN one, I love the way it was revamped from the first time I did it. And mm -hmm. there was a change maker in there as well. So I, mean, oh, cool. I think, I think That's everybody awesome. really does need to read this book especially if you're in, in our industry. So well, thanks put it, for that. Put it at the top of your list. No, that's a, that's a, well, no one's going to no read brainer. it. Now. You didn't like the man. <laughs> that's right. So. Uh, dumbass liked <laughs> Walker and didn't like Mandalorian, but uh, there's that one part of the book where I was talking about going through a really, really dark time. And I was writing down like options to get out of a difficult situation. And one of them was kill myself. And that, I mean, that's even in one of these books, right? Like these books are my learning as a human. You know, and they sometimes include work things and sometimes include piano things. And, you know, for those of you who do end up reading my book, you know, I would devote Fridays to Thinking Fridays. And so I'd fill out a lot of these books on Thinking Fridays. But um, but yeah, I mean, the, that's the point you were just making, right? Like, how are we 
gathering experiences to craft a um, more meaningful life for yeah. ourselves. You know, I mean, ultimately, that's what we're, I think what we're talking about, right? Why do a podcast? Why ask experts questions, right? Like, uh, this is, again, it never turned yeah. out that way. It's very similar to PN. It's like, like you said, if you have the end of mind of like, I'm going to make a lot of money, it will be a much different experience than like, I want to do this for the sake of right. Yeah, let's do, let's just do something remarkable that meets a need for people. And that is really fun for us. I mean, again, if you're in that small sliver of, of the population that uh, is privileged enough to be able to think about the, the meaning in your work, right? Rather than just needing dollars to pay for the basic necessities of life. Um, then I think, you know, it's a huge privilege, but it actually becomes a big responsibility because now the responsibility is actually make it meaningful. You know what I mean? Like make the decisions that are required to enjoy the heck out of this, because if I'm going to be working, doing something for the rest of my life or whatever, I'd love to know at the end, like that was meaningful. I had fun. Other people benefited. Um, those things don't happen by accident though. You no. know what I mean? There's, the there's some work. Consciousness and like that top of the self-actualization and all that. If you have the privilege and you don't have to worry about food and money, all this stuff, I don't want to say like with great power comes great responsibility, but at some point if you're there, you, just you basically have the choice of like doing shit with it. Cause like not everyone gets yeah. to just have free thinking moments Fridays and right. You know what I mean? Like it, that's not that's, a reality. No, that's exactly right. And that's, that's why like, that there does come at least in my mind a bigger responsibility right but the payoff is tremendous right this idea you know as for those who have the book you know if you take the dust jacket off there's like a an etching on the front cover of the book you know and it's you know, when i die or retire you know will I, will this life have been meaningful right and that's that's my mantra that's what i'm always working towards and for the people who can't afford to ponder such questions I want to inspire them to ask that and then design a life that they can answer affirmative to that. It was meaningful. I did enjoy it. Like it was worth having done that, you know, and for me, there's a little bit of embedded history here, which is I grew up in an immigrant family. Uh, the values that my parents imparted on me primarily were hard work, like uncomplaining, unflinching, hard work, work multiple jobs, you know, like they're Italian immigrants, you know, they come from a really poor farming village in Italy. And uh, so that's what I learned primarily from them. So I just knew like, okay, this is baked in now I'm going to work hard on whatever I work on for the rest of my life. So that's not even negotiable. So I'm like, gosh, wouldn't it be awesome if what I ended up doing was meaningful and mattered, you know, because the, the working hard was going to be the baseline, right? And so then that that sort of became like, gosh, I don't see a lot of people around me asking that. I think they should, you know, like I, I think this would really benefit us all. So it's become a really important thing for me. And that was kind of the impetus for the book. I, I like the fact that you did turn around and with all your experience and all the stuff like the, what is it? 200,000, you know, points of data that you guys have from clients oh, yeah. you work with that uh, you, you put it all into this compendium of all your coaching experience and all the things you've learned along the way. So mm -hmm. as well, I, I love the book. So like I said, I, I think people should put it near the top of their list and make a point of going and getting it. Mm. Well, thanks. Thanks for that recommendation. I really appreciate it. You know, for me, um, it really, it really isn't, you know, I mean, we, we sold PN for a lot of money, so this isn't about making money, selling books or whatever. I, I donate all the money that I make off the book. Um, 
So I, I split, split it between raising awareness for the book and donating the rest. So I, I, I'm not going to get rich off of it. It's that's meaningless to me with respect to this. It was just, it felt like a sort of a capstone and a legacy project for me. And so that's why I did two painstaking years to put it together. Cause I'm like, Hey, this has to be good. It has to be true. It has to say all the things that I think are true about what I've learned in my career. Um, and that's, that's sometimes harder than, um, than you'd think. And I mean, anyone who sits down to write anything knows the challenge of writing, but, um, sometimes when you sit down to write what, you know, it can trip out as cliches or this is what people want to hear rather than what I think is true. And so for me, it was a painstaking editing process to be like, well, no, this isn't, this isn't actually what I think. This is what I thought people would want to hear about what I think. Okay, let's scratch that and put what I really think mattered here. And so it was, uh, it was, it was a much more difficult project than I expected, but I am tremendously proud of it. Well, that's essentially what we tried, like, uh, whatever, but like, it's kind of what we tried to do with the podcast was essentially we had, like, you kind of have this, this thing, this podcast is supposed to go this way. And I was like, fuck yeah. that. Like, I don't want to hear the same old questions. Like, we want to kind of just take you in a direction where, it's manifesting in the way in which we saw the deficit of like, if you're going to listen to someone, like I want the story to be true. You know what I mean? Mm. Not the sales pitch, not the, the pre um, yeah. written thing that they did. Like we got it. You did that. But like, it, yeah. what's true behind this thing? It's interesting. Cause it's, it's like yeah. you said, we're having the same conversation about something totally different. That's it. That's right. Yeah. It's like, uh, I can read uh, your PR statement anywhere. <laughs> Yeah. On the podcast, I want to have a real conversation, you know, and I, and I think basically podcasts only work in two ways. One is if you have a storytelling show, right? That would be like NPR style, right? Where you've gone out and you told stories and vetted them together and that sort of a thing, or you have authentic conversations. Those are the only two po kind of podcasts that actually matter. You know what I mean? You can see right through the ones that aren't in those categories. And like, that was like our biggest mission was like, we hate this one, this one, this one, this one, but I can't bitch about it because if I can't kind of deliver the thing that I'm saying I don't like, then I'm the problem or we're all the problem. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Have, mm -hmm. have you ever done or, uh, and if the answer is yes, then how many, like how often does it happen? Have you ever done interviews and then you're just like, we're not going to run that one. It doesn't yes, meet the bar. Yes, we ran it. One. Yeah. Well, actually. <laughs> and if, we if, never, we learned so much from that. We're like, uh, yeah. There's, there's two answers. One is I think out of, we're nearly at 150. I think there's probably seven or eight that I look back and go, all right, that was mediocre. And there are various reasons for it. Or I think the guests may have quite frankly been more style over substance, but the overwhelming majority, I think we're great. We've learned a lot along the way. And then unfortunately there was one that uh, we had a guest who we were really excited to get. And I'm not going to say any names, but it might be easily enough to figure out. And then that guest got me tooed and into a lot of trouble. Mm. And we were due to release in a few days. We're like, nope. There's no oh, yeah. way in the world we so, can release this now. So my answer is there's been a few, but like the only ones that were bad, like bad, and the ones that we didn't feel good about, there was a clear agenda behind it. I'm like, fuck, right. but we still release it anyways. Because it's like, you know what? At the end of the day, it is what it is. It's as, as long as it's true to us, it's just a matter of at the end of it, it's like, Hey, I won't, I'm just going to pull back from those people. And it's a good refining filter process. on mm -hmm. like, What does this thing? It's, look it's part look of the authenticity that this podcast is. We've also said this on the air before we've only ever edited out one piece of one conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, 
from the guest's request, who was a fantastic guest, because she decided that, you know, this personal story that she launched into, she really didn't want to go there. Mm-hmm. So she decided retrospectively, hey, you know, you know, I really don't want to do that discussion. Can you guys pull that out? And we said, absolutely. We took it. There's nothing else we've ever chopped or edited, I think, in any way, shape, or form. And then mm-hmm. there was just one episode we had to bury uh, just the timing, whatever, right? So Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've always been curious about that. And uh, it's an interesting dilemma that comes up for sure. It feels bad. Like, you know, when you like, you, you know, when you like did something, ah, I wish I didn't do that. But it, yeah. in hindsight, it's like, hey, that was helpful. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of started with the motto of we're just like, I don't want to say we said fuck it, post it. But essentially, like there hasn't been much editing because to mm-hmm. do that the process would have been horrible. And then it would mean that we didn't like the way we did things. So I was like, we're just mm-hmm. going to throw it out there. And it is what it is. And like, let people kind of decide what they like. Because to do to kind of like, um, nurture or tailor an image was yeah. exactly what we didn't want anyway. So it's yeah. all kind of like the manifestation of that is what we hated. I feel like there's a growing up process too. I mean, you know, you mentioned Andrew, like reading my early stuff on Teen Nation, you know, and I was uh, maybe 28 or 29 at the time when I started writing for them. And, uh, you know, I'm 46 now. So um, the there's a growing up process that happens. You know what I mean? Hey, JB, do you regret anything that you wrote? younger in your career oh there's a few pieces i'd added quite heavily now because i think differently about things with 20 years of experience um but uh but i was young at the time you know and uh i was doing the best that i could and uh i think it might have been the google founders who said this um you know when they first launched google you know it wasn't what it is today and uh and they talked about intentionally limiting the size of their audience for a while because and the notion was that if the broader audience would have had the early version of Google, it would have failed, right? Because it had to get better. Like it was good enough for the early adopter nerds. You know what I mean? They deal with the bugs, you know? That, that, you know, they can, they can, they are going to, uh, enjoy the growing with you process, right? And then help you make something that the world will consume. You know what I mean? I think this applies to writing, podcasting, uh, YouTube. I know Jordan Syed has said this and Gary Vaynerchuk certainly has. Their early YouTube stuff, they don't think is very good. A lot of people come to me about writing questions and getting started. And part of it is just getting started, getting your own website. Mm -hmm. And then they're both worried about finding people to read their work, yeah. but also worried about what will people think and will judge. Well, guess what? Get started. If no one really reads it right away, you have a great runway to practice yeah. before a lot of people are starting to see it. Because That's you need right. to develop that skill. And what's the worst thing that could happen? Turns out it's pretty good. Turns out a lot of people see it early on and shit. Well, that's not exactly, that's a problem you wanted to have. You yeah. wanted to actually have more eyes on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see yeah. any downside either way. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, I mean, there, there's an outcome where you never get any traction, which is also feedback, right? It's, hey, maybe, maybe there isn't potential in this for me. I've been cranking on for two years. The audience hasn't grown. It's not making a difference to anyone. Okay, cool. Let's kill this particular thing. And I just kind of ruled out a you know, line of work that maybe isn't for me, you know, but um, not everyone gets there, though. That's that sunk cost thing. And like, yes. it's, 
I've been ruth like I think it's because I wasn't in this industry to start off with, but like I had to make right. the change out of teaching. But it's just like if something is not working or like not fitting in, like it's gone, and it's like it's mm-hmm. the best way to be ruthless. But it's also it manifests differently than if you hold on to something for way too long. And I think a lot of people make that. I don't want to say it's a mistake. It is what it is. But yeah, the people mm-hmm. I see who pivot, not necessarily pivot, but pivot when it's right, is yeah, that's a good thing. And you know, and not to be too. Um self-promoting here, but there's a whole chapter in the book about this, you know, this idea of how does one go about doing research on self to determine your purpose, unique abilities, and your value systems, which should inform your career choices. You know, uh, one way a lot of people do it, and it's worked for some, is trial and error, right? I'm going to try, this thing sounds fun, I'm going to try that. No, does it work? Didn't it work? Okay, edit, right? Try something new. Um, I think there's a better approach right? Throwing darts at a dartboard, you know, how I feel today, you know, it's a low probability play, right? It's not guaranteed to not work, but I'm all about like enhancing the probability of the things that I want in my life to come true. Right. So, uh, uh, to much to the chagrin of people around me, like my wife is so sick of hearing this, like, Hey, Hannah, I think that's a fine idea are there any ways we can increase the probability of this working out, you know? So it ways to increase the probability or that may decrease the probability is probably a term that starts like inducing slight nausea in her life. You know what I mean? But that's how I think of things. Right. So, you know, uh, when solving problems, when talking to professionals about their career, it's all about how can we enhance the probability that you're going to find the, the right things for yourself earlier on. Right that the path is a bit easier for you, that it's more resonant with you, that it has a higher chance of succeeding. That's what we're talking about here rather than binary. This is going to work. That's going to work. That's not, you know, and so that's, uh, that's where I spend a lot of my time. I hope you coined it as killing two birds with one stone. So that's how I've kind of like, if I'm yeah. I better get something else built up in it. So at least if it's trash, I like, I got something. Yeah. Like- I, I've always called that like double, triple, quadruple dipping. Right. So it's like, how can, how can one piece of work, be used in four or five ways. You know, that's always been something really core to my uh, professional creation philosophy. You know what I mean? Like how can, or, or even beyond professional, like in my personal life, you know what I mean? How can doing this effort translate into three or four benefits for my life rather than this effort for this benefit, this effort for this benefit, this effort for this benefit. I'm going to die before all the things that I want get done under that model. You know, you have a realization. I remember like vividly, like vividly, it wasn't even like a panic attack. I was like trying to like get everything into my brain when I first started the career. And it was like, someone did something so well that I was like, I'm never going to be that. It was like awful, but it was also great. Cause I was like, sweet. Like I, it's all the weight of the world's off my shoulders now. Cause I can't never get there. So I was like, I'll just kind of do what I'm going to do. There, I was talking about this recently. There's a speaker um, named Kelly McGonigal. She is one of the most um, watched uh, TED Talks. And so I've gotten to be friends with her over the years. We've been on a couple boards together and we spoke at events together. And if you've seen her talk, she is an excellent, excellent TED style speaker. So I remember being at an event with her and there was like a little green room where they had the screen so we could watch the presenters while they were presenting while we were kind of hanging out waiting for our turn. And I remember, I think I went first that day and then she went second or third or something like that. And I remember her walking back and I'm like, Kelly, I just watch you present. You're brilliant. I was sitting there, realized I will never be (laughs) as good of a speaker as you. Um, And then I realized I didn't care. You know what I mean? In that order, I was like, 
gosh, I'm never going to be as good as her. I'm kind of sad. Wait, no, I'm not sad at all. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I think that relief came that you're describing also because it, because it just it occurred to me that I'm never going to be as good of a speaker like her, but I'm actually quite a good speaker the way that I speak. You know what I mean? So it just be, gives you permission to be more yourself yeah. rather than a, a copy, like a facsimile of someone I, I else. The same quote. It was like, I don't like, it was on another podcast I did, but it was like, you, if you just kind of do what that person did, you're literally a shittier version of them. Yes. You know what I mean? When, you, when they're never going to be you. So it's like, just yeah, I talk about this all the time, all the time. Yes. Uh, we don't need copies of what other people are doing. We need you to bring unique you to solve the problems of this field. And it's so hard to do early in your career because you're not quite sure who unique you is. And that's why, again, exercises in the book, lean on the people around you to help, like lean on your mentors. Like there's questions that you send them, you know, you send like, for example, your unique abilities, you send these 10 questions to your mentors, to your parents, to people you've worked with, to people you've uh, coached and they tell you what your unique abilities are. You don't tell yourself because you're not going to get them right. You know, and so you lean on the wisdom and experiences of others to really sort of compile this who I am, you know, and and then also there's this weird thing, especially when we're new to a career, like you said, you were where you're like, OK, um, am I doing this right? You know, and that's where we end up copying people because we're like, hey, I, I have this unique thing that I could probably do here, but maybe everyone around here thinks it's wrong. And um, I don't know. Have you guys ever eaten Dave's killer bread? Okay. No, it's probably so American. Yeah, it is. It's American. We, we so, uh, so there's this bread that you find in most grocery stores in the U.S. and uh, and on the on the on the bag of the bread, uh, there's this guy Dave, and he's got like long hair, like a mullet, and he's playing the guitar, and his you know like it's the classic personal trainer pose where his biceps are pressed against the guitar, so they're popping. So he's a muscular guy with long hair, rocking the guitar that's Dave who makes this killer bread, right? And, and it's higher in protein and lower in sugars and starchy carbs and it's tasty. And again, it's ubiquitous. And I don't know, Dave, you know, people, some people have told me he's from Portland and he's gotten in some trouble with the law and stuff like that. <laughs> like he might not be an enviable character, but um, for, I'm just going to hold on to my story, which is there's this guy, Dave, who likes working out, likes eating healthy, plays guitar. He's got this persona, right? And he's just like, you know what? I like guitar. I like muscles. I like protein. And I'm good at baking. I'm going to start a bread company for people like me, right? This is the weirdest combination. But old Dave combined them. It's, you know, what's my purpose? What are my unique abilities? What are my values? What can I bring unique to the table rather than copy other people? No, there was no Fred's killer bread. You know, it was just Dave's killer bread, right? <laughs> so he made this thing. He patched together a bunch of you know unrelated things and now he's got bread all over the united states you know it's it's on the shelves and right next to wonder bread you know so he made it this is a totally random thought but you get you thinking about like famous jacked uh musicians like rockers and there is actually a famous jack dave uh, it's dave weindorf from uh, monster magnet if you know the band but there's not that many of them when you think about it and right. i think the other one the only the other other really well-known jacked uh, musician tried to have someone hire, hired someone to try to kill his estranged wife. That was a guy from As I Lay Dying, 
uh, and his name is Tim Lambesis. So he went to jail for a while for doing that. Right. Totally you're random not stories. Saying, I not know, saying but... a nice benchmark for muscular musicians. Um, <laughs> no. And then there's Danzig. He, Danzig's the other one. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, any, you know, the, the idea though, is you see these kind of things. Uh, this is honestly, personally, this is one of the things I used to thrive on earlier in my life and career. Um, the dissonance of having unexpected traits in the same person, right? So I used to love going to university. Uh, I was like, I'm 5'9", 230, um, and 12% body fat and crushing my courses, you know? And just the teachers expecting me to be a meathead, you know? But I was good at school, you know what I mean? And all this, and that's like the most surface level, but I love these contradictions, you know what I mean? And uh, I think when we try and get serious, become adult, uh, and especially try and do business, we've, we're afraid of the contradictions in ourselves. We think we need to water down uh, ourselves into something that, you know, is more palatable or whatever. And, but, you know, I, I had to mention today. It was like, we got John Berardi. I, I'm going to like not wear a hat. And I was like, fuck it. I, like, be I've super never professional, done that, so right? Like, yeah. I put my, but I put my hat on because I was like, I'm going to stick true. I'm going to wear my hat. There you go. Nice. <laughs> um, and, but we have a thousand decisions like that every day. Uh, I think before we started recording, uh, Andrew, you mentioned Luca, who's a good friend of mine also. And I remember at his event uh, last year, which I spoke at, um, and I, I don't speak at many events, but Luca is a personal friend. He's been one of my biggest fans since the beginning. So when he asked, I was like, sure, you don't even have to pay me, dude. You know, I, I really value our relationship. And I remember looking at the stage of all the people speaking. And I remember looking up there and going, man, every one of these people is unique. Um, they do their thing in a very special and different way. Um, and all the people in the audience, though, if we don't warn them, we'll just try and copy. You know what I mean? I'm like, there are no two people up here because they copied each other. Yeah. You know, there's an Eric Cressy up here. There's a Mark Fisher. There's a me. There's a um, uh, Craig Ballantyne. You know, every one of them is in their own lane, you know? And so it's just such an important reminder. Like, if you don't want to be on that stage, copy the people on that stage. If you do want to be on that stage, you show up and bring some your specialness to solve a unique problem in this field. That's how you get on the stage, you know. What I think I don't even want to say that that's the aspiration, but I think I think it's cool not to be on the stage. But I think everyone goes in there wanting to, and then they do it the way you're saying, which is copying. So it's actually good advice, but it's also if you think about it, like, do you really want to do that too? Because like with that comes mm -hmm. time, effort. Like, what if you have kids? What if you have all this stuff? It's kind of cool to not be on the stage too <laughs> yeah you, yeah or just get there on your own terms really because because what's the cost right let's say you do copy someone uh I, I think it's a lower probability play right because there's already one of those and you're going to be worse just because you're less experienced maybe one day you'll be better but right now you're going to be worse because you're new and you're copying someone else um so it's a low probability success play but even if you do achieve success you're pretending to be someone else can't think of much worse than that. Yeah. I think that's a really amazing place to leave off. This is probably I, I think the longest podcast hours, we've ever like recorded. I, said, Andrew. I wish I <laughs> I wish I could. Um, I actually have a client in under fifteen. So John, this, this has been an record. unbelievable uh, pleasure to talk with you, and I hope everybody listening um, 
got a lot from this. And I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and this is fun because this is an entirely unique discussion. I've never heard these particular talking points from you before. So thanks for taking the time to come talk with us today. Well, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, both of you. Thanks for the enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate it. Hopefully this didn't turn out to be one of those episodes. <laughs> You're like, man, I don't know how we should be. We'll be pushing it hard. <laughs> and uh, so anyone listening to it, I mean, we're going to release it today. Um, you know, we, we recorded it the same day that you're hopefully listening to it and, uh, we'll get you a graphic. I have a title and a graphic in mind and we'll give it to, to Jason and, uh, he wants to share around uh, PN. So obviously we'll have a little bit of fun with that. It might be Witcher themed. We'll see. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Why John Birdie awesome hates the Mandalorian. It'll be the title. That's so well, bad. We actually it's made really Krista Scott Dixon. <laughs> we made Krista Scott Dixon, the child. In the Mandalorian, you so did. Made for, we made it. It was a good graphic, and then Adam Pike got she Fight can, Club. I think she might be able to move things with her mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate it. And for everyone listening in, thank you. Thanks for spending time with us today. I know we're going near two hours now, but uh, hopefully, you got some value from us. Shut up and sit down.